So again, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we ask you to once again send your Holy Spirit down upon us as we reflect on the mysteries of your life, as we reflect especially on how the Holy Spirit worked in your life. Ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to go a little less than what I've got written down in there. Um, we've been kind of pushing through a lot of material fairly quickly. And so we're going to kind of back off a little bit this week. And we're only going to talk about the section about the mysteries of Christ's life. Uh, that, that part with the relationship of Israel, that really actually is the start of the conversation about his passion, death, and resurrection. So I felt it was better to leave that for next week. And so we'll shift the schedule around the next couple of weeks as far as the... the, the uh, paragraphs we're going to cover. So this this week we're covering just the mysteries of Christ's life, that section. And part of it too, I was kind of sitting there going, this is an easy section to talk about, so today feels like a good day to just kind of do a little bit lighter, lighter class, you know, can have a little more, little more uh, relaxed conversation about it, if anything else. So um, yeah, so, so we'll get started, you know, much of Christ's life is a mystery. Much of who our Lord was here on earth, what he did, are a mystery. They weren't revealed to us. When we look at the Gospels, when we look at the, the stories of our Lord that are told in the Gospels, their central focus is on proclaiming the faith of Christ in, in the Christian faith, basically. So everything that the apostles wrote down and the evangelists wrote down in the scriptures weren't as a historical document. It, you know, it's not meant to be a historical biography of our Lord. The Gospels aren't. The, 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 the New Testament isn't. It's talking about how our Lord proclaimed and lived the faith that he proclaimed and lived. And so everything that was told about him was written through that lens. So when we look at the Gospels that talk about from his nativity, from his birth, all the way through his resurrection and ascension into heaven. When we look at his miracles and his teachings, when we look at everything we know about him as a human being, all of them, all of that is focused on the faith that he came to proclaim. His very humanity shows that he, his divine sonship, that he was and is the second person of the Trinity, come to earth. And that his mission was to go out and pro proclaim that gospel message. Most of his life was not recorded. Now, there are extra biblical sources that you can find. And these sources are of plus or minus questionability. Some of them are reasonably plausible. Let's just put it that way. They're not the Bible. They're not inspired text. You know, some of them, like there's an in infant narrative that talks about when he was a kid and things that he did as, a, as an infant and as a child, the years we don't know. There's some of them that talk about events that happened when he was in his, what, you know, what we call the hidden years. And some of these, again, there are some that we can, in good faith, take as fact or at least as possibility. There are some... Um, some who are known especially as like the Gnostic texts, they call them, 
was it 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that was the big thing. All these, there's texts that were found in Egypt somewhere. And it's like, no, we knew about them and they were condemned, you know, a hundred years after our Lord died kind of thing. Those are just outright fabrications. Those are not real. Much of his life as a child and much of his life as an adult were um, not recorded. And we don't know anything about that. And in his wisdom, did not want them to be revealed. So, but there is much of his life that we do know about. And even that we know about is a mystery because most of his, his whole life is a mystery in the sense of it's a truth that we do not, we cannot grasp, we cannot understand, we do not know. Because everything that our Lord did, though, was to reveal the Father. Again, that's the gospel message, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to proclaim the salvation that he has come for, to proclaim that God wants to be our father. He wants to adopt us as his, as his children, and he wants to manifest that love among us. So much of what our Lord did was about that. Of course, his coming to earth, the fact that he, very, he even came to earth as one of us is important part of his whole life is because he came to earth to redeem us from our sins. And so the catechism in paragraph 517 lists a bunch of points, lists like five points about how our Lord's life was about redemption, about redeeming us. He said, you know, he, his life was about, you know, he about redemption in his incarnation through which becoming poor, he enriches us with his poverty. He could have come as a king. He could have come as a wealthy man. He could have had anything and everything he wanted. He could have shown up in the middle of Rome. He could have showed up in some of the greatest cities of the world. At any time, at any place. He chose to come as very simply, humbly, in a, a part of the world that was really kind of considered a backwater. The what we call the promised land, the holy land, was not seen as a place you wanted to go. If you were somebody who was somebody, especially if you were moving up the ranks of, say, like the Roman military, you didn't want to get stationed to Jerusalem. You wanted to get stationed to Rome. You wanted to get stationed somewhere in Italy where you would be amongst, you know, the, the movers and the shakers of the world. But our Lord came in poverty. He came poor. He came simply and because of that, he was able to enrich us through that. And it's one of those, those, it seems like a contradiction, enriched through poverty. But of course, our Lord, because he was poor, he was, he came from obscurity. He came from nothing in the eyes of the world, but he had everything and was able to give us through all that he had. It also tells you he redeems us through his, through his hidden life, which by his submission atones for our disobedience. He could have come out, you know, as soon as he was old enough to walk and talk and started proclaiming the gospel. He could have, as soon as he was an adult, started to go around the countryside and proclaim the gospel. But he didn't. He had his hidden life, whereas a child, he was unknown. He even went to Egypt, had to flee to Egypt for years before he could come back to the promised land, to the holy land. He worked simply as a carpenter. He was obedient to 
Mary and Joseph, he was obedient to the Father, the Heavenly Father, and lived simply and worked simply. He, he redeems us in, in his word, which purifies its hearers. And of course, you know, that's the, the gospel he proclaimed, the words that he spoke, the actions that he did. You know, we also was, you know, redeemed in his healings and exorcisms by which he took our infirmities and bore our diseases. You know, these healings and these miracles that he was able to do. All of this, these teachings and these actions that he did were all for our redemption. And then, of course, in his resurrection, by which he justifies us. The fact that he died and rose again. All this is miracle. The, the mysteries that he, that he is his life that were done for our redemption. And then the catechism uses a word, recapitulation. And that means to take up again, to, to renew, to restore. You know, so he by by his life, by the mysteries of his life, he restored us to communion with God. That through what he did, we were united by God. We were united to God once again. We could once again have salvation. But he also, in his life, summed up all of Revelation. You know, we talk about Revelation history, and all of Revelation history was summed up and fulfilled in his life, completed in his life. And so, with these mysteries that our Lord brought with his life, we share in them. We share in those mysteries because his life was not about himself. It was about us. It was about us. The things that he did, the life that he lived, none of it was about him. It was about us. Showing us the example of what life should be being the model for what life should be, how we should live our lives. You know, that humble submission, obedience, all those things are examples for us. And then, of course, then he gives us his life through the Eucharist, through the Holy Spirit, through the working of the church, and so on. He gives us himself that we might be joined with him and he might be joined with us, that we might be united. So all of these mysteries, these are all things that we participate in, that we share in as Christians. And so what are these, these mysteries? And the Catechism lists a bunch of them and it breaks them down into the infant, the, the, yeah, the infant and hidden, infancy and hidden life mysteries, and then his public life ministries. And so we'll kind of go through those. Uh, first of all, you know, in his infancy, the one mystery it starts out with, interesting, is not even a mystery of his life. It's a mystery of the preparation that was done with Israel. And the world is a large, the, the Gentile world, the pagan world. That preparation that was done before our Lord even came on earth. You know, the purpose of the old covenant, the reason why God made the covenants with Israel was to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, over centuries and centuries and millennia, really, thousands and thousands of years, the people of Israel were gradually prepared for that day when our Lord would come. And we have the prophets, we have the teachers, we have the kings, we have all these people who prepared the people of Israel for the coming of our Lord. And our Lord was the fulfillment of that. You know, and of course, 
when we talk about being prepared for the way of the Lord, we have to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is considered to be the last of the old covenant prophets. He is the forerunner. He is the one who came immediately before our Lord and literally pointed to our Lord. You know, he, he was talking to his apostles and said, or his, his disciples and said, behold, the lamb of God, that's the lamb of God, follow him. You know, he is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. You know, John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals, which that was the lowest of the low slave, slave got that job. You know, the lowest low servant got the job of taking someone's sandals off because they'd be, feet would be dusty and nasty. But the, the life of John the Baptist was for being this forerunner, being this person, who, this, this one who was preparing the way of the Lord, even in his womb, because there's that story when our lady pregnant with our Lord goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth and John the Baptist leaps in her womb because he was preparing his way. He knew that the son of God, the second person of the Trinity had come even as an infant in the womb. And then of course, again, in his preaching, his baptism, and even in his martyrdom, John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord. And we are called to enter into those same preparations. We are called to enter into those same preparations with our season of Advent. With our season of Advent, and especially within the liturgy of Advent. When we look at the readings of Advent, they're all about prepare the way of the Lord. And they walk through the preparation coming to our Lord. And the emphasis, of course, is that as we prepare the way of the Lord, as we prepare for the Lord, we speak, as John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. We must have that humility, you know, open to that humility in our lives. And so going from the preparations, of course, we go to the mystery of our Lord's birth, the mystery of Christmas, what Christmas is about. And as I said, you know, he was born poor. He was born in humble surroundings. He was born to a poor family. We know the story. You know, he's laid in the manger and the animals and you know, nativity scenes and all these things. The reason why I said that he enriches us in his poverty, because his poverty allowed God's glory to shine all the more clearly in the world. That his humble surrounding allowed his poverty, allowed the glory of God to shine through the world, just as it did with the uh, shepherds who were out in the field when our Lord was born. And it shows that we must be willing to approach him with humility, to approach him as a child, to approach him as with the simple humility as one who trusts God, and to be as he said, born from God, to be reborn, to have that, that born, you know, they say born again, but to be reborn through baptism, to be reborn, cut off from the th things of the world and focused on God. Another mystery, of course, is the mystery of our, our Lord's infancy. Now we know a little bit about his infancy, but we don't know much. You know, we see the, the, the circumcision and epiphany and presentation of the temple, the flight to Egypt, you know, these, these events during his, during his infancy, which again, all of them point to aspects of how we should live our lives. This, this circumcision, or how we live our lives and to the fulfillment of the preparation, the fulfillment of the old covenant. 
fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. You know, in, in the circumcision, you know, that was the circumcision was the sign of entering into the old covenant. It was that you became a member of the Jewish covenant, the Israelite covenant, the male did through circumcision. And by our Lord being circumcised, he showed submission to the law in Jewish worship, that he was first and foremost a Jew. He, at least on, a, in a, on an earthly sense, on a human sense. Now, obviously, he was much more than that. But he showed that he was submitting himself to the law and the Jewish covenant to live about part of that. But the circumcision also prefigures the sacrament of baptism through which we enter into. We enter into the new covenant. Much, much easier to be baptized than be circumcised, I can tell you. You know, I'm glad that I'm glad that, that changed. That we enter into the covenant through the waters of baptism. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. We have the epiphany. We see our Lord who you know, is revealed to the world as the, the Savior of the world come into the world. And not just the Savior of Israel. Because notice who came during that event. You know, the we three kings, they were pagan kings. They were Gentile kings. They were not Jews. They were not members of the Israelite nation. But they came to Israel. They came first to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem to find the new king of the Jews, the new savior of the world. So these magi, these, these kings, represent the Gentiles. They represent the fact that our Lord came not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, for all of us, for the Jews and Gentiles, that all of us can participate in the fullness of God's salvation. So it was opened to all. We look at the, the uh, presentation in the temple where after our Lord was born, you know, there was the tradition of presenting the child in the temple. And it's, he was presented as the firstborn son. Not just the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph, but the firstborn son of the Heavenly Father. That he was, he was the first presented back to the Heavenly Father. And that he was the light of the nations. You know, it says in their proclamation that he is the light to all the nations. I believe it's Simeon that said that. And then there's also the prediction of with the, the sword of sorrow that will pierce Our Lady's hearts and that it predicts our Lord's sacrificial death on the cross. That it, Our Lady is warned that she will have these sorrows that she will have to undergo for her son. You know, and it, it's, again, prefiguring, predicting this, this death on the cross. And then shortly after that, the, they had to, the family had to leave. The Holy Family had to leave Israel because our Lord's life was in danger. And they had to flee to Egypt. They went to Egypt where there was Jewish communities there. There had been Jewish communities in, in Egypt for a long time. And our Lord, the Holy Family went to join them because they knew there was going to be opposition. This opposition to the light of Christ. You know, the light has come into the world and the forces of darkness are going to fight against it. They're going to challenge that light of Christ. They're going to try to snuff out, to wipe out that light, to you know, blow out that candle, if you will. But then, not just you have that fleeing to Egypt, but the, you also have the return, where at some point they came back from, is, or from Egypt to Israel in a mirror of the Exodus. You know, it actually really is a mirror of what Israel went through, um, but also kind of, uh, kind of a uh, opposite as well. Now, again, I'll talk about that here in a little bit. 
but it was very much mirroring what, e what Israel went through his life, fleeing to Egypt and then returning. And then we don't know a lot about our Lord. We know there's the incident where he's found in the temple and he's talking about being with the Father's house. But other than that, we really didn't know, don't know a lot about his life. We don't know what he did. We don't know um, other than it was revealed he was a carpenter and a son of a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter. But most of his hidden life, I would say, could be considered ordinary. He was just, by all outward appearances, an ordinary man. Obviously a really upright man, but an ordinary man. You know, he was he grew as a kid, and it says he was, he was obedient to Mary and Joseph, and he took on the trade of carpenter from Joseph and worked as a carpenter and did all these things. He did manual labor. And we know that they were religiously observant. Obviously, <laughs> the Son of God is going to be very much relig religiously observant. You know, but beyond that, he could have been anybody else walking down the street. He, like I said, he was obedient to Mary and Joseph. We know that for a fact. We know that he was because it was the perfect fulfillment of the fourth commandment to honor your father and mother. It, you know, he would have, of course, fulfilled the commandments perfectly. But he wasn't just obedient to his father, his earthly father and mother, Mary and Joseph. He was also obedient to his heavenly father. And again, that's the religious practice. His life was a life of obedience. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Paul the Paul the sixth, when he was still pope, went to Nazareth on one on a papal trip. And he gave this speech that's very, that's quite well known. You, you might have even run into it once in a while. I mean, you hear about it every once in a while. Um, and what what the cat? I, I want to read the whole quote from the Catechism because I think it's a, I think it's something worth reflecting on. Uh, Paul VI said, "The home of Nazareth is the school where we begin to understand the life of Jesus, the school of the gospel. First, then, is a lesson of silence." May esteem for silence that admirable and indispensable condition of mind revive in us. A lesson on family life. May Nazareth teach us what family life is, its communion of love, its austere and simple beauty, and its sacred and inviolable character. A lesson of work. Nazareth, home of the carpenter's son, in you I would choose to understand and proclaim the severe and redeeming law of human work. To conclude, I want to greet all the workers of the world, holding them up to their great pattern, their brother who is God. And so our Lord's life in Nazareth, what, what Paul VI is saying here, is that first of all, just looking at their life is a school of the gospel, can teach us living according to the gospel. And we see their home life, where the love of the Holy Family the love between Mary and Joseph, between them and Jesus, between Jesus and them, is very much the example of what family life should look like. Uh, it, it's a very beautiful thing, and it can teach us, again, how to live the gospel, not just within our families, but within our world as well. But it also shows the importance of work. Our Lord didn't have to work. He did not have to come to earth and work, but he did. And he worked, again, humbly as a carpenter. He wasn't working a job where he was out in public. He wasn't working a job where he was wealthy. He worked a very simple job as a carpenter, a good job, a needed job. 
but not one that people would stand up and say, yes, if the second person of the Trinity is going to come to earth, he's going to become a carpenter. You know, that'd be like saying, you know, he's going to go work the roads or you work on the roads or build a building. That's not what people would imagine. But it's necessary work. And work has redemptive value. It has value for us here on earth because we participate in creation. And so our Lord, through his work as a carpenter, worked in creation, you know, helped with creation. And so that's how he lived his life up until about the age of 30. We don't know exactly, you know, how old he was or anything like that. But generally it said he, he began his public ministry, ministry about, the year, about, his, about the age of 30, give or take. And so he begins his public life with the baptism, the baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist. That is where his public ministry began. That is where he started on his, uh, his path that led to the cross in public. And it is at that baptism that he is revealed as the Messiah and the Son of God through the, through the Holy Spirit coming down upon him and hearing the voice of the, the Father from the cloud he is revealed as the Savior, as the Son of God, as the one who has, come, who has come to free humanity from its sins. And by this baptism, he took on the role of suffering servant who took on those sins. It is at his baptism that he took on those sins in anticipation for his baptism of blood on the cross. I like that parallel between his baptism of water with John the Baptist and his baptism of blood on the cross. The one led to the other. And so, of course, by taking on our sins, he consented to his death for the remission of our sins. He gave himself that we might be freed from sin. And one of the important aspects of the baptism of John the Baptist is that through that baptism, he showed us the need to be reborn of water and the Spirit, to be need, need to be reborn through our baptisms, that when we were baptized, we entered into that rebirth through water. You know, and it was, is a necessary aspect. I, I love, I wish, I, I should have brought the baptismal book because there's a part in the blessing of the water that through his baptism, it opened the font of baptism for us by our Lord being baptized, he allowed for the blessing of baptismal water for our baptism. You know, that, it, the, again, that they are united. His baptism and the baptism that we have all received have been united. After he was baptized, we, we know that he, he went out into the desert. He went out into the desert for 40 days and was tempted. 40 days, that sounds familiar. I wonder why. We might talk about that for a second. But after those 40 days of fasting... He was tempted by the devil. And, you know, the devil doesn't have a lot of new tricks. He basically does the same tricks. And so the three temptations that our Lord faced were the same temptations that Adam and Eve faced. You know, that our Lord was tempted with food because he was hungry. Well, Adam and Eve were tempted with food because it looked good. It looked like it was pleasing. Oh, take it. It's, it's good. That's a good apple or whatever the fruit was. You know, they were tempted with that. He was tempted with, with power that he could have all, or, or sorry, he was tempted with that he wouldn't be harmed, that he wouldn't be killed, that he would be protected. You know, that, that he, our Lord would be, could throw himself off the temple parapet 
and wouldn't even stub his toe. Well, Adam and Eve, they were tempted that, oh, God said you're going to die if you eat this. Oh, no, that, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. And then third of all, of course, was the power that, you know, here's all the world, all the kingdoms of the world. You could rule all of them. And with Adam and Eve, the power was to become like God, knowing good from evil. So he used these same tactics because they worked on Adam and Eve. They worked on them. Our Lord was faithful. Adam and Eve weren't. And so our Lord is considered the new Adam, the new Adam of the new covenant. Uh, he renewed the world after, from Adam's fall, Adam and Eve's fall. And so, but also, as I said, the Holy Family coming back from Egypt was a mirror of the Exodus, but it wasn't exactly the same because the Israelites, as they were, if you read the, ex, the book of Exodus, they grumbled the whole way. They are constantly complaining and arguing and turning against God and having problems. Our Lord didn't. Instead of grumbling and complaining as the Israelites did, he showed himself obedient to God's divine will in the temptations. The Israelites were tempted to grumble. Our Lord wasn't. And so... I made that comment about the 40 days because, of course, 40 days is traditionally how long we say Lent is. Because the season of Lent is, in a way, us entering into that, that desert that our Lord was in. That, that temptation, not even the temptations, but that, that sacrifice, that, that fasting that our Lord did. You know, Lent should be a time of fasting. It should be a painful time. It should be a difficult time because we are entering into that fasting. So after he had gone through the temptations and he had gone through the 40 days and all this, he then began his public ministry. He then went out and began proclaiming the kingdom of God. You know, and right off the beginning, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. From Mark 1.15, he went out and proclaimed this message of the coming of the kingdom of God. And his message is that all, all of us can enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is open to all of us and we are all called to enter into that. But to do so, we must accept his word. We must accept his message. We must follow him. We must live humbly as one of the poor and lonely. We must lowly. We must, you know, love as he did, especially loving the poor. And whether it is poor in spirit or poor in, in material good or whatever the poor, the poor is, we must reach out and love them as our Lord did if we wish to enter this kingdom of heaven. You know, he, he loved the poor, those of us who are poor sinners, by giving his life for us. He identified himself with us and gave his life for us. And he invites us as sinners to the kingdom. He invites us to come and join. But this isn't an unconditional call. You notice every time that he approaches a sinner, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. He calls them to repentance in order to enter. And when 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 people will throw at you the, well, I don't, you know, I don't need confession because after all, Jesus ate with sinners. 
or something along that lines. And I've heard that. They're missing the second part. Go and sin no more. When Jesus said, well, you can't condemn, let's say, a certain political person whose bishop did call her to repentance. <laughs> the immediate reaction, well, Jesus didn't judge. He did, went and ate with sinners. You missed it. He went and ate with sinners and told them to go and sin no more. He called them to repent from their sin. He didn't say, oh, you're just finding your sin, and I'll go have a meal with you. He said, go and sin no more. And that's the call for all of us in our sin, whether big or small. You know, whether those things we think are little tiny sins that don't bother anyone or the, the, the mortal sins. Our call is to repentance, to go and sin no more so that we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he gives us this invitation through the parables. That's what the parables are for, are to help us to better understand his mysteries, help us to understand the kingdom of heaven. And what he asks us through the parables is that we have to be willing to give everything to enter the kingdom. Think of the man who found the pearl in the field, sold everything he had for that pearl. You know, things like that. Um, he tells us through the parables that we have to practice what we preach. Words aren't enough. We need to live what we say. You know, whether, whether we like it or not, whether other people like it or not, we need to practice what we preach. You know, so we need to be seeking forgiveness from our Lord as we preach it to others. And then, of course, you know, it shows these parables will show how we live our lives and how open are we to the gospel. You know, they're the parable of, you know, will we be hard soil or good earth? You know, the parable of the guy, the farmer scattering the seed. Will we be hard soil that doesn't, doesn't accept the gospel or will we be the good earth that will accept it? You know, he has given us talents. How will we use those talents? Again, the parable of, of the, the, the king who went away and gave his, his servants money to invest, basically, and one of them didn't. Things like that. All these parables are meant for us to reflect on is, am I living like that? Am I living as our Lord is calling to do? Am I living to come to the kingdom? And to truly understand the secrets of the kingdom, we must approach him as a disciple, as a learner, to seek those secrets. That's why we do things like this, you know, to help us better understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Part of his proclamation of the gospel, of course, were the signs. He didn't just use parables. He also used signs. And this is, of course, another mystery in his life. These signs show us that the kingdom of heaven was with our Lord, that he was bringing about the kingdom of heaven and that he was sent by the Father. Now, the purpose of these signs were to strengthen the faith of those who saw it. That they heard our Lord proclaim the gospel. They heard what was going on. You know, they heard his message. They saw what he was saying to others. And then they saw the signs. They saw the miracles. That not just could he preach, but he could also do these miracles, these signs, these healings. These healings were not meant to free us from all pain and suffering. You know, notice he didn't heal everybody. You know, he didn't just blanket. Everybody is now healed and there's no more illness. There's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. It was to show first and foremost that he came to free us from the slavery to sin. And that's again why a lot of the healings he talks about go and sin no more. He talks about you have been freed from your sin. Because the healings are more about freeing from sin. 
And then, of course, we have the exorcisms. We have those, those times when he casts out demons. He can't cast out de the devil. And it's showing that our Lord has victory over Satan. Satan will not win and has already lost. He just doesn't know it yet. And when our Lord is walking on earth, proclaiming the kingdom of God and doing these signs and these exorcisms and so on, Satan doesn't realize he already lost. The game is already over. You know, and that ultimately our Lord will win. Or as I've heard someone say, it's, you know, I've read the last chapter of the book and Jesus wins. Of course, the last chapter of the gospel or of the, 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 the Bible. Where, you know, it says that he, you know, bring us to eternal life and so on. You know, the last page of the book says that he wins. Well, that's just it. He has already won. And he already won when he came to earth. Now, one of the things that our Lord did as part of his mystery was to appoint his apostles. His 12 apostles, his closest disciples. And he gave them especially the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Especially Peter. Peter was appointed, named, made, if you will, the first among of the apostles. He was the, the head of the apostles, the leader of the apostles. And our Lord tells us that he built his church on Peter. You're Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Our Lord gave us that foundation. Ironically, someone who kept putting his foot in his mouth, but that's another story. St. Peter was pretty good about kind of, you know, opening his mouth only to switch which foot was in it. But I know that feeling well. But what he's telling us is through Peter and his successors, the popes, that we will have that unshakable foundation that hell will not prevail against the church. After 2,000 years, if we don't believe that, we're not paying attention. And of course, ultimately, the church will be victorious. The body of Christ will be victorious over the power of evil. And it'll be when our Lord returns. But we, we are in union with the Pope. We are in union with the bishops because of their being successors of the apostles, especially the Pope as successor of Peter. If we stick with them, we are on that sure foundation. And then another mystery that points to the kingdom that our Lord did during his life, and a big one, is the transfiguration. During the transfiguration, our Lord gave Peter, James, and John a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. Gave them just a, just a, a, a sample, you know, a bite, if you will, of the kingdom of heaven. Because in the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John got to experience the divine glory of our Lord. They got to see him in all his glory. And by them experiencing it, we have an idea of what that will be when we get there. What awaits us, the glory, the power, the majesty. Interestingly, of course, this is one of these places where St. Peter just, he opens his mouth. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what's going on. He's, it says that they were, they were afraid. And yet he says, I want to stay here. Let's set up tents. You guys can stay in tents. Let's just hang out here and stay put. Because obviously it was, it was so incredible for him what he heard and saw and experienced. You know, so that's a foretaste for us. Now, by our Lord seeing Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah are, of course, Moses is the lawgiver, the one that gave the Mosaic law, the law of Israel, 
that God gave it to Moses and Moses gave it to the Israelite people. Elijah is considered one of the great prophets, one of the greatest prophets of Israel. And so by the two of them being there with our Lord in the transfiguration, it showed that our Lord was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that the law and the prophets were fulfilled in him. But it also shows that as the law and the prophets foretold, he will enter into his glory through the cross. You look at the law and the prophets and they predict that he will be, he will die for us, that he will sacrifice himself for us through the cross. Um, and so that, you know, there's so much meaning there packed into just those two people being there when you look through the old covenant. Um, also there were the three members of the Trinity. And this is the second time that all three members of the Trinity were there. As, as I said, at his baptism, all three members of the Trinity were there. Here, all three members of the Trinity was, were there. Because once again, you have the voice coming from heaven out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Our Lord, of course, the second person of the Trinity was there in, him, in, in his earth, in human nature. And then we have the cloud itself, the shining cloud that radiated around them was the presence of the Holy Spirit at that moment. And so the baptism of the Jordan and the baptism of transfiguration are really mirroring each other again. You know, the baptism tells us, as the catechism says, the mystery of our first regeneration in our baptism. That in our baptism, we were first regenerated from original sin. And then in the transfiguration, it shows us the mystery of the second regeneration that will come at our resurrection. When we will, we will rise from the dead, as our Lord did at the end of time. So all of that is talking about, is talking about how our Lord's life in his mysteries revealed the kingdom of heaven. That was his mission. That was, was, that's what he was here for. And that's how, why he lived his life as he did. And now we're going to kind of move as our Lord is getting closer to his death. One of the great mysteries, of course, is his ascent to Jerusalem. The fact that he went to Jerusalem that last time. He knew he was going to Jerusalem to die. He told the apostles as such. He knew that's where his life was leading him. And he went and did it. He went to Jerusalem knowing otherwise. He went to die just as a number of the prophets were killed in Jerusalem. You know, the major, so, not so much of the major prophets, but definitely some of the minor prophets died in Jerusalem. Many prophets died in Jerusalem. He knew that he needed to go there to die. But yet, as he's going there, he still wanted the people of Jerusalem to come to him. He still wanted to reach out to them. There's that, that, that image he talks about, Yor, where he would gather your children together as a head and gathers her brood under her wings. He wanted to bring everybody in, all of Jerusalem. Of course, because he wanted to bring everyone in, but he, he still would gather them, and he wept over them. You can go to a, a church in the Holy Land today, Dominus Flavit, which means Jesus wept, or Jesus weeps. And that is the location where we believe that he overlooked Jerusalem as he, he's calling for them to come in and he's weeping over the fact that he knows he's not going to be able to bring them all in and that he's not going to be able to save all of them because he still at that moment desires that people of Jerusalem knew who he really was, knew what he came to do. As he says, would that even today you knew the things that make for peace if only you knew who was among you that could bring you peace that you can't imagine. And so he, he went to Jerusalem, and then, of course, we've got the Palm Sunday, 
the, 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 the messianic entrance into Jerusalem, this, this entrance of the, the conquering king, the savior, coming into Jerusalem. And it's interesting when we look at that because he spent most of his life not wanting to be known as the king. He, he literally got out of there when people would start talking about making, you know, raising him up as the next king of Israel. He would leave and go somewhere else. He did not want people to do that. And yet, he submitted himself to this grand entrance as a king, as a Messiah, a savior, coming into the city, you know, on, on Palm Sunday. And it's almost as, it, it almost is a story of, of humility in his life because he didn't want that. But he knew he needed to make that sign of the Palm Sunday, of this, this grand entrance, this grand entrance where he was acclaimed by the poor. In those words that we still say today at Mass, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, those, the Hosanna in the highest, as we say in the, in the uh, Sanctus, the, the Holy, Holy, Holy. You know, the, those, those grand words of proclamation of the Savior. And by this, he showed that the kingdom of God was here, that it had come in him, and it was going to be fulfilled by his death and resurrection on the cross later that week. So it's appropriate that during Holy Week, we begin with Palm Sunday, talking about that triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And so that's all I've got. Like I said, I'm cutting it here. Um, I think thought that was a little bit easier, a little less brain twisting than some of the other stuff we've covered. Uh, so any questions about any of this? How was that good? All right. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, this was a little bit simpler, so I didn't expect a lot of questions, but all right, well then we'll just cut it there then. People don't think they have to work. And this is what tells you in here that he works. Yeah. That that's what the whole thing is is work. Um, yeah. Well and it's it's we we've gotten a mindset in Western civilization, especially capitalist countries, that work is only for money. You know, you give your labor for money. Yeah. And that it, there is an aspect of that. I mean, our Lord worked carpentry for money for the Holy Family. I mean, let's, let's be honest about this. But there's also that aspect, as the Catechism said much earlier, that work is a participation in the creation of God. You know, when somebody helps to build a house, they are participating in the creative act of God. You know, but it, everything you do, I mean, like getting married, you have to work at it or it don't work. Yep. It just, it, and that's what the younger people don't understand that they have to work at their marriage instead of just. Yeah. And that's why a lot of couples are getting divorces. Although I think the number, the percentages are going down. That's, I mean, that's actually good news. I think the percentage of divorces are going down quite a bit. I mean, at one point it was like half the marriages. Ended in divorce. But I think the percentage of marriages is going down. Too. That's true, too. Yes. Especially marriages in the church, you know, with the understanding of the church. You know, what marriage is about and why we do it and all that. Um, yeah. And, of course, you know, we've got the, uh, I want it my way. You know, I, I try to tell brides, don't look at the bridal magazines and it's already too late. Because, of course, they want the big grandiose wedding. And it's like... You know it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be the perfect wedding you see on TV or the movies. Or it's, you know, 
And that's not what it's about, is the perfect wedding. It's about what happens after the wedding is over, from that point on to the rest of your life. That's the more important aspect that the wedding leads to, you know. Um, and it, it, it is a, a difficult it's a difficult time when you do have people coming to the coming to the church and oh yeah we want this we want this we want this like hold on <laughs> time out let's talk here you know so yeah I agree yeah but is there really a perfect wedding there never is yeah my ordination to the priesthood wasn't perfect weddings aren't perfect baptisms aren't perfect there's always something you know you know there, there are times when I've you know <laughs> things happen you know, um, you hear, you, oh, I want to be wedding, I want to be married out at the ranch, and it rains out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it happens. It actually happens, you know, stuff like that. So, so any other questions? What you said about submission, uh, Christ's submission, I think that's a good example to us all. Our submission to the church, yep. I think, is so important, and people miss that. Exactly. Because it gives yeah. you, gives you direction. Because so, sometimes we don't understand the laws, or we don't yeah. understand the laws, or yeah. The rules but you get, we, but we the submission submit. is the important part. Exactly. Without that, we're lost. Yep. Right. We're not capable of finding our way. Yeah, exactly. You know, we we think we can. Well, Jesus tells us He's the way, the truth, and the life. So if you're going to follow His way, you got to follow His path. <laughs> you got to submit to. Him. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's, that's, again, that's something that we don't do in our country today. Yeah. It's got to be, you know, I always say it's, you know, it's the, we want the Burger King. Have it your way. Yeah. Or, you know, oh, for, for those, you know, remember a little bit longer ago, you know, Frank Sinatra. They want to be the Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Yeah. And that's, no, we don't do it my way. I tried doing that. Yep. It doesn't work too well. I came back to the church. <laughs> what, what's funny is I actually had someone who wanted, I had actually had someone who wanted my way played at a funeral. It's like you realize that's the ex, that's the wrong message you give at a funeral. Yeah. That he did it his way. Yeah. You know, it's like no, no, no. It, it shouldn't be he did it his way. He did it Christ's way. You know, so. Yeah, you, you, your way goes to the other way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you don't want to go me anymore. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's not I want it. I you know I must have it. Give it to me. And I want it now. You know I want it all. I, I like you know different movies or whatever. But you know the 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 original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I want it all and I want it now. Yeah. You know the the spoiled brat girl that's standing there wanting the golden goose and she wanted everything. You know that's what people are. You know and if they can't get it, you know I, I and I. I, I admit I'm just as guilty as anyone else um I, I joke or you know one time I actually timed you know I've got one of those Keurig coffee cup makers you know it's one cup one pot at a time it takes three minutes from hitting the on button to a finished cup of coffee and sometimes that feels too long three minutes it's not that long yeah well but then the second cup of coffee is only like 30 seconds it just takes so long for it to get warmed up and everything but that's the culture we're in. And like I said, I'm just as guilty of that. It's like, come on, you got to be done, right? That's why I set the coffee pot the night before, and it's on before I wake up. Yeah. Carrie Stone, unfortunately, don't have that setting. I wish they did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, any other questions? Oh, dear. All right. Well, let's close. Okay. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 
name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.